All right, if you got your Bible, we can turn to 1 Samuel. I'm going to be between chapter 13 and chapter 14. Um, I actually preached out of this uh, a few years ago, and I wanted to revisit it to start off our um, new year and this series. And then next week, we're going to be uh, looking at a very familiar passage um, that I actually have never preached in the um, 13 years that we have uh, been a church. And so I'm looking forward to that um, for this two-week mini-series. And then um, the third week of January on the 15th, we will be um, kicking off a uh, brand new 14-week series through the book of Philippians. And so we'll go through the book of Philippians um, over the next 14 or so weeks um, together as a church. Um, we do several um, book studies a year, and so um, we will start off with Philippians this year. And so if you have your Version Bible app, I'm in the CSB if you want to follow along word for word, it'll be on the screen in your outline um, as well. If you're joining us online, it'll be on the screen as well. Um, I think it's safe to say that we all have had regrets in our life, some sort of regret. Um, in fact, it is said that we um, will not, uh, at, at the end of our life, when we're on our deathbed or we know our days are numbered, um, our greatest regret won't be what we did as much as it'll be what we didn't do. Even on our deathbed, there's opportunity for us to reconcile, to, to make wrongs right. Um, but oftentimes, when we're on our deathbed or at the end of our life, those things that we let pass that we didn't do, um, we can't go back and redo those. Um, that girl that you wanted to ask out in high school that you didn't ask out, it, that's done. That's too late. Th those things that you wish that you could have done or should have done or the things that you knew were right, but you didn't do them, you can't go back and, and, and take those back. You can't go back and make those right. And so at the end of our life, it's often said that our greatest regret will not be what we did, because some of that can be reconciled and some of that can be fixed, but it's what we won't and what we didn't do. See, oftentimes in life, we look at situations that stand before us. We look at decisions, and they look impossible, that they look too big. That they look um, too costly, like it's going to take too much risk. The, the outcomes are unclear. Um, and, and so we disengage. We, we isolate ourselves. We don't move forward. It kind of paralyzes us. And really, that thing that paralyzes us from doing what is right and from making the decision and from moving forward and from doing the right thing it is often two things. And it's simple. It's fear and uncertainty. Fear and uncertainty. Fear has a way of paralyzing us. It has a way of causing us to disengage. When we don't know um, what lies ahead of us, when it's uncertain, we oftentimes can be paralyzed from making any decision. And so the things that cause us to disengage and not move forward and not do the right thing oftentimes is fear and uncertainty. And you know this if you've ever like started a business or um, maybe you're starting out a family and um, there's always that fear of you got a new baby and you, you don't know what to do. And so it, it can cause you some sort of um, paralysis in how do I parent? How do I father? How do I mother? Or, or maybe it's starting a business and the fear of not knowing, will, will customers show up? I understand that from the point of starting a church. And, you know, if we do this thing, will people even come? Will, will they even show up? And so if you've ever taken a risk or you've ever faced a big decision that seemed impossible, you understand that the uncertainty or the fear of failure, because oftentimes we operate from a Western mentality, a, a success mentality, that it's got to look a certain way, 
It's got to be a certain size in order for it to be deemed successful. And so if it's not that, then we fear not only the, the hit to our reputation or the feeling like a failure. And so there's fear and there's uncertainty, and it holds us back from doing what's right or making the decisions that need to be made when things seem impossible, when things seem too big. You know, I've never met anyone who regretted living life too passionately. I like that word, passion. It's a verb. It, it, it signifies like movement, and it signifies like being engaged and being actively involved in something. Now, some people have gotten in trouble by doing things too passionately and being too passionate, but I've never met someone who was like, you know what, I regret being passionate about this. I regret having too much passion for people or too much passion for this thing that I um, am involved in or that I love or that has captured my heart. I've never met anyone like that. But I have met people who regretted the consequences of being um, dispassionate, being too passive, and the consequences that came from that, the, the results that happened because they did disengage, they did isolate themselves, they didn't make that decision, they didn't do what was right, they, they chose to play things passively or to be apathetic, and there were consequences to that, and then there were, uh, there were regrets. And so in 2023, I want us as a church, I want you as a follower of Jesus to live courageously. I want us to be courageous Christians. When I spoke to our students just a couple weeks ago, I, I introduced the same thing to them and said that that was going to be our theme for the year is to be courageous. And I want that to really echo throughout our church this year is to be courageous. In the face of the impossible, to be courageous. In the face of challenges, to be courageous. In the, in the face of um, setbacks or um, the, the, uh, the opposition that we will face from spiritual attacks, to be courageous. To, to face a culture who is anti-Christ and anti-Christian and anti-church, to be courageous. To not be hateful, to not be um, uh, the, in such a way that we, are, um, we, we detract people, but yet in our faith we stand up to the challenges, and we stand firm in our faith, and we choose courage, and we choose passion, and we choose to be bold. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, and we're not going to go there, but just to set things up, if you want to read through these chapters to see the full context of what's happening and all that we're talking about today, in 1 Samuel 10, you will see um, that Samuel has instructed Saul to go to Gilgal with his men and to wait there for seven days. And after this seven-day period, now he doesn't say on the seventh day, he doesn't say on the eighth day, he just told them to go and to wait for seven days. And after that seven days, he would come and he would fulfill his um, duties as a priest, and he would offer a burnt offering for them before they go to battle. But in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 3, you will see Jonathan, the um, son of Saul, who was the king, um, passionate, not disengaged, but engaged, not living apathetically or passively, but passionate about his people and passionate about the right thing. And so he attacks this Philistine garrison and he defeats them and it angers them. And so now you see that the Philistine garrison or the, these Philistines, the army, angered, has now surrounded the Israelites and God's people. 
and they are ready to attack them and to destroy them. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 5 to 7, we see this. The Philistines also gathered to fight against Israel, 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Bethaven. The men of Israel saw they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in caves and thickets among rocks and in holes and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was still at Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. So Saul starts out, and he's got 3,000 soldiers, and they're up against this Philistine army who the Scripture tells us has um, 3,000 chariots, which is essentially the war machine of the day. Like, like this is the, the premier um, battle uh, you know, equipment, you might say. Like, to have chariots was, was big. But not only did they have the chariots, but they had horsemen and then soldiers, the Bible says, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, up against the Israelites who have 3,000 soldiers. And so this is what they're facing. And confronted with this powerful army, um, Saul, leading his soldiers and leading his people, wait the seven days as Samuel has instructed for him, And when Samuel didn't show up in their timing, most of Israel's soldiers fled. Because after all, they want God's favor. After all, they understand that they're God's people. And Samuel has said that he's going to come after seven days, and he's going to offer this burnt offering on their behalf. And Samuel doesn't show up in their timing. And so fearful of the larger Philistine army pressing in on them, not only do Uh, a good portion of these soldiers flee, but then Saul uh, Saul does something grave. He takes matters into his own hands. He does what was not his responsibility to do. He took and he offered the burnt offering something that Samuel, the messenger of God, he's the prophet. And so in this day, as the prophet spoke, he is delivering a message directly from God. So to disobey the the prophet was to disobey God. And so in this moment, he's not just disobeying Samuel. He's not just doing his own thing against Samuel. He's doing his own thing against God because God has given this instruction and this is what God desires. And so Samuel in this moment ignores God's instructions and he offers the burnt offering himself. And I wonder, looking at the humanity of Saul and understanding that we're no different than Saul, we're just like him, how many of us have ever been tempted to get the right results by doing the wrong thing? We want the right results. I mean, it was good that he wanted God's favor, right? I mean, the Israelites wanted God's favor. That wasn't a bad thing. I think we all want God's favor in our life. I think we all want to be in right standing with God, and we all want to be faithful to God, and we all want to live obediently to God. And so that wasn't a bad thing. But the bad thing was is that he was tempted to get the right result by doing the wrong thing. And I think we've all been there. Some of you might be there even today. Some of you in the workplace, maybe things are tense at home, and you just want to feel loved. I mean, is it wrong to want to feel loved, to want to feel accepted and and, and Um, embraced by someone, and so things are going bad at home, but that person in the office place is giving you that attention, giving you that affection, making you feel loved, and wanting to feel loved is a good thing, 
We're, we're wired that way. We're designed that way. And yet you yourself could be tempted to get a good thing, love and affection and attention and those things that we're designed in our DNA to desire and to want, but to go about it the wrong way. It's good to provide for your family. The Bible tells us that, that we should provide for our family, that if a man desires to eat, he should work. And, and so it's a good thing to want to provide for your family. But, but in our experience, that temptation to have a good thing to provide for your family and to um, put, put food on the table, to put a roof over your head, that's a good thing. That's a good desire. But that temptation could be to fudge on some numbers, to make sure you get that bonus, to fudge on the numbers, to make sure you get more of a tax return, to fudge on those numbers. And all of a sudden, that, good, that desire for that good thing tempts you and leads you to do the wrong thing. That's what Saul is doing here. He wants God's favor. He wants victory. He wants to preserve his life and the life of his people. And so he takes the matters into his own hands, desiring a good thing, going about it the wrong way. His fear and uncertainty led him to sin against God. And in the same way, we can be tempted the same way to, to, to pursue something good, to desire something good, and to go about it in a sinful, wrong way. And so Samuel told Saul that God was going to establish his rule. Like, he, he was going to honor him. He was going to establish his rule. Maybe he would have this great reputation for years. I mean, we talk about David, even in his sin, how David was a man after God's own heart, how David defeated the Goliath, and how David did this. And we, we speak glowingly of David oftentimes. And yet Saul... Saul always has this kind of shadow over him. Saul's the one that went crazy and threw spears at David. I mean, there, there's always this shadow over Saul. His rule was going to be established, and yet, because he sinned against God, he lost it. It was taken from him. The very thing he tried to take into his own hands, and the very thing he tried to take control of in his life, he lost. The very thing he tried to preserve was taken from him. And in the same way, the truth can be said about us. By going after the right thing, the good thing, in the wrong way, those things could be taken from us. You might think that that relationship in the office place, in the school, next door, whatever that situation might be, is worth it, but it could cost you your family. It could cost you your reputation. You, you think that nobody's going to know that you're fudging the numbers and that you're trying to go about, you're trying to get a good thing in the wrong way until you find yourself in prison, until you find yourself with a felony, until you find yourself facing the consequences of something that you thought you could get away with because in the moment you weren't thinking about the consequences, you were thinking about the good thing. And so it's no different for us that when we go after a good thing or even a right thing about the wrong way, there very well could be consequences in our own life because Saul lost the very thing because of fear and uncertainty. He lost that which he tried to preserve for himself. So now the Philistines have surrounded the Israelites and were prepared to attack in verse 19 and 23 of, of, of verse 19 and 23 of chapter 13 says this, no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel because the Philistines had said, 
Otherwise, the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all the Israelites went to the Philistines to sharpen their plows, mattocks, axes, and sickles. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for plows and mattocks, and one-third of a shekel for pitchforks and axes, and for putting a point on a cattle prod. So on the day of battle, not a sword or spear could be found in the hand of any of the troops who were with Saul and Jonathan. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had weapons. Now a Philistine garrison took control of the pass at Michmash. And so the Philistines tried to control and weaken their enemy by making it where they couldn't have weapons. In fact, they um, required them to come to them to have their just everyday tools, their farming tools sharpened so that they could actually do work. And they charged them to do this. Why? Because they had their own set of fear. They didn't want them to have weapons. In a way, you kind of look at this and go, I mean, maybe it's because they knew that this was God's people and 3,000 people with swords, even though they had chariots and horsemen and uh, the, the soldiers as, the, the, as numerous as the sand of the seashore, maybe they had their own fear. And so they try to weaken them. And on this day of battle, as the enemy is threatening, the very enemy that keeps them from having weapons, these soldiers don't even have weapons of their own. If anything, maybe they've got some gardening tools, but that's it. And so it's no wonder that these people have run away. But worse, Saul is a negligent leader. Not only did he disobey God and take matters into his own hands, but as earlier, the Israelites had defeated the Ammonites. And in that moment, Saul could have armed his soldiers. He could have armed his people for future battles and for future threats, but he didn't. He was negligent. And so in this moment, as they are faced with this massive army, no weapons, you would probably run too. You would probably be full of fear and uncertainty, not knowing what to do. You would be paralyzed, running to the cisterns, hiding in the mountains, trying to preserve your life, trying to preserve yourself. And the scripture goes on to even say that some went and joined the enemy. And so this is the situation that's taking place. This is the impossible situation that they're facing. The only people with weapons are Saul and Jonathan. And this shows us, Saul shows us, that just because someone has a leadership title doesn't mean that they're a good leader. Parent. CEO, president, pastor, director, titles don't automatically make someone a great leader. But every one of us are leaders. You, you might be uh, the leader of yourself. Like you just got to get yourself up in the morning. You got to get yourself dressed. Um, and, and that's it. Maybe you're the leader of a family. You, you've got kids to look after and to care for and to get up and to get dressed. Maybe you lead a business. Maybe you lead a, a, a team of people. Every one of us have influence in some way. It's not the fact that you have influence that makes you a good or a great leader. It's what you do with that influence. And what we see in this moment is that Saul has been negligent with his leadership and with his influence. And it's really put them in this position. And so chapter 14 then goes on and it tells us this in the first three verses. That same day, Saul's son Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, Come on, let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. However, he did not tell his father. Saul was staying under the pomegranate tree in Migran 
on the outskirts of Gabeah. The troops with uh, him numbered about 600. So it's now from 3,000 down to 600. Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod, was also there. He was the son of Ahitub, the brother of Ichabod, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the Lord's priest at Shiloh. But the troops did not know that Jonathan had left. And so here, as the troops um, press in, as they threaten, and as they get closer, and as the moment of battle um, draws near, we see the difference between Jonathan and Saul. Jonathan is courageous. He's passionate. He wants to be on the front lines. He wants to be in the battle. He wants to engage. The fear and the uncertainty is not holding him back. It's not paralyzing him. If anything, he is moving forward. He tells his armor bearer, come on, let's, let's go to the front lines. Let's go towards the enemy. And yet look at Saul. He's the king. He's the leader. He is the one instructed and given the responsibility to lead these people. And he's passive. He's apathetic. He's chilling under a tree. He, he doesn't want to engage the enemy. He wants to preserve his own life. So he's nowhere to be found. He's under a, a, a shade tree doing nothing. And so in verse 4 to 6, it goes on and it tells us, there were sharp columns of rock on both sides of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine garrison. One was named Bozes and the other Senna. One stood to the north in front of Michmash and the other to the south in front of Gabeah. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. You can write this down. It takes courage to do what's right in uncertainty. It takes courage to do what's right in uncertainty. Jonathan plans to cross a sharp column of rocks as he takes the, the pass towards the Philistine garrison, which has been cut off according to the scripture ahead of this. And the scripture tells us that the, the names of this pass in this area mean slippery and thorny, describing the pathway and the, the, the direction that they had to go to get to the enemy. It's, it's thorny and it's slippery. This is not the best military strategy. Like you don't even have to be um, a, a former uh, soldier or currently in the military to look at this and go, this, does, this is not good. This, this isn't the smartest strategy. Not only is the path difficult and challenging, but Jonathan has one sword and it's not even in his possession. He's entrusting it to his armor bearer. And so if the armor bearer gets scared, as they get closer to the enemy and they see the chariots and the horsemen and the swords and the massive group of soldiers, and the armor bearer gets scared and runs off. Now Jonathan has nothing. He has no sword. He has no weapon. You would look at this and go, that's foolish. But I love it because it shows us once again, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You don't have to be the sharpest tool in the shed. You, you don't have to have all the answers. Jonathan didn't have all the answers. He was passionate. He had courage he had faith. And so he decided to do something rather than sit back and do nothing. He decided to engage rather than disengage. 
He would rather be on the front line where there was risk and where there was danger and where there was threat to his own life to do the right thing rather than chill under a shade tree doing nothing while his people were threatened. He was willing to lay his own life on the line if that's what it took. And this is what he said, come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Jonathan had no guarantee the Lord would help um, him or help his people defeat the enemy in this moment. He, he had no promise of success. There was, God didn't speak to him through Samuel. God didn't speak to him audibly. God didn't come to him personally and say, Jonathan, if you engage in this battle and if you pick up the slack where your father is um, sitting back and not engaging and not doing the right thing, then I'm going to give you success. I promise you this success. What he did have was a promise to his people. What he did have was a promise that God had given to his people of victory. What he did have was simply a perhaps. He knew he wasn't supposed to passively sit underneath the tree avoiding the fight. He was supposed to engage and do what is right. And I wonder, is there something in your own life as we begin 2023, as we begin this brand new day, as we begin this brand new year, that you would look back on, and even in 2022, you know that there's something that God's been impressing on your heart, that he's been speaking to you about, that he's been convicting you about, that you know is the right thing to do, but you've been passively kind of ignoring it, avoiding it. Or, or maybe where you used to have passion, you used to engage, where you've kind of grown passive, and now you're the one that would be kind of chilling under the shade tree, disengaged not involved, or whatever that situation might be. You're, you're playing it safe. Maybe it's that we've called over the last year at different times to use your gifts and your abilities to engage in ministry, to, to, uh, whether it be internal or external, when we do things outside of the church or when we do things inside the church. And it's like, oh, I could do that. I could be involved in that. I, I've got that skill. I've got that talent. But this, whatever the excuse is, whatever the reason is. And so you haven't engaged, you've disengaged, you've kind of been hands off. Maybe it's starting to be generous. Maybe it's starting a ministry. Maybe it's saying, hey, I, I can lead this. Hey, I can do this. It doesn't always have to be in the church. There's needs all throughout our community. There's needs all throughout the city. There's needs all throughout our world where you can say, you know what? God's given me this talent. God's given me this ability. And yet there's that fear. Where do I start? How would I fund it? Who would help me? Who would show up? Who would need it? Whatever that is, is there something in your own life where you know God's led you to do the right thing, but you've been playing it safe? You've chosen apathy over passion. You've chosen fear over courage. Saul gave into fear and uncertainty. Jonathan didn't. He believed nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Lord can save the Lord can deliver, the Lord can provide, whether it be through our 600 that we have left that's back at camp, or whether it be through myself and my armor bear. I believe that the Lord can deliver. I believe that the Lord can provide. I believe that the Lord can save, whether it's just me or whether it's the entire army. But I'm not going to sit back and just wait and see if God just magically works, because God works through his people. 
God works through his, the hands and the feet and the mouth and the minds of his people. That's why he's given us those things. And so he decided to use those for the glory of God. See, the difference between Jonathan and Saul, the difference between the two was simply this, faith. It was faith. Faith isn't the absence of fear. You will have fear even if you're full of faith. We're human. We're, we're sin, we, we, we have sinful flesh on. We will fear. We will doubt. We will face those um, feelings and those emotions. But faith is trusting that God is more powerful than the thing that we fear. Faith is believing that God is bigger, that He is more powerful than that thing that we think will hold us back or prevent us from accomplishing the thing that he has called us to accomplish, or whatever we feel is success. See, because our, mind, our mindset of success is, um, you know, the biggest company, the most profitable company, the whatever, whatever that is, it's the best, the greatest, the largest, the most prestigious. That, that's what we think is success. The, the wins. And yet success, according to the Bible, is obedience. I like what my friend Shane says, our measure of success is simply faithfulness and obedience. It's, it's, even if you set out to do what you know God has called you to do, has impressed on you to do, and it fails in the way that the world would say is failure, if you obeyed God, then it was a success. If Jonathan steps out and he loses his life, he was still a success because he obeyed the Father. I love what Louis Giglio said one time in the Old Testament, all the heroes like were successful, David, Daniel in the lion's den, David and Goliath. Like we can go through uh, all the heroes of the Old Testament, how God gave them victory and, and what we would deem as success and spared their life, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and, and all of this. But all the heroes that we consider heroes in the New Testament, they suffered and they died. Were they any less obedient? Were they any less faithful when they were crucified upside down, when they were cast to an island, in prison, beaten, shipwrecked, all of what they went through for the sake of Christ, were they any less obedient? No. And so our measure of success simply has to be on my walking in faithfulness and obedience to Christ. No matter what the outcome is, no matter what the, the, the results are, am I faithfully walking in obedience to Christ? Because the reality is, is as the scripture tells us, he will provide the needs of his people. See, we all love certainty, but true faith operates in the uncertainty. See, it's easy when you know the outcome. It's easy if you know what God's going to do on the other side of the decision. Uh, uh, as you take that step of faith, if you know you're going to be successful, if you know it's all going to turn out okay, that requires no faith at all. See, true Christianity is a walk of faith. Have you seen heaven? H have you seen the resurrected Christ? I mean, your whole faith is based on faith. Your whole salvation is based on faith. You've not seen Christ. You've experienced him through the Holy Spirit living in your life, but you've not seen him. You've not seen the physical heaven that is our eternal hope, and yet you believe in it. 
Yet in our life, in our everyday life, in our decisions, we want certainty. We want to know the outcome. We play it safe when there's risk involved, when there's too much cost, when there's too much difficulty, when there's, um, it's too big of a problem, when it seems impossible. Yet we trust God for an eternal home in heaven in His presence. See, faith is not the absence of fear. It's what you do in the face of fear. It's what you do when it's uncertain. It's who you trust in that moment. Faith is activated in the uncertainty. That's when we have to trust God. And that is what Christianity is. It's a faith walk with God. Fear and uncertainty can be crippling. It can lead us to isolate and to retreat. It can cause us to neglect our God-given responsibilities. And I wonder if that's what it's done to some of you. It's caused you to isolate. It's caused you to, to disengage. And an author once said, fear is temporary, regret is forever. Fear is temporary, regret is forever. You might fear forgiving that person. You might fear sharing your faith with that person in the cubicle next to you or that neighbor that you know needs Christ. You might fear that. But the regret of that person not knowing Christ and not hearing the gospel, which is the power unto salvation and not impacting them for eternity is an eternal regret. That, that has eternal consequences. See, we're called to be engaged in this work of the ministry, the gospel work. We're not called to be silent about our faith. We're not called to be disengaged. We're not called to make our faith personal and private. We're called to go into all the world and to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them all that Christ had commanded. That's what we're called to do, not to disengage and not to give in to fear. And so in 2023, when we talk about being courageous and we talk about being courageous Christians, it's a call to engage in the things that could have eternal consequences if we allow fear to control us and fear to hold us back. Living courageously doesn't mean we have all the answers. Some people are going to think that you as a Christian, oh, you must have all the answers. No, we don't always have the answers. It means that in uncertainty, by faith, we push through and go forward doing the right things even when all we have is a perhaps. I don't know that God's going to work in this moment. I don't know that he's going to provide. I don't know that he's going to give me my idea of success and how I think things are going to turn out. But you know what? Perhaps he might. I have faith that he can. I have faith that he can deliver and that he can save, whether by many or by few. I believe that he can use me to do this because he's powerful enough to, and he is able to. And so therefore, I'm going to take a step and I'm going to walk forward because perhaps he might deliver. Perhaps he might provide. Perhaps he might save. Perhaps he might do something in me and through me. Courageous living isn't believing we're all powerful and able to overcome every challenge. It's believing God is able to save if he chooses. He's the overcomer and he's our victory. He's our provider and he's our protector. And so I've experienced this starting new passion. It was full of uncertainty. It was full of doubters, no support. Very little support. I don't say no support because that, that, that disrespects the people who did support us. But what we did have was trust in a God who perhaps could use us in starting a church. 
who perhaps could send people our way, who perhaps could place us in the path of someone who's dealing with an addiction and needs freedom from that, who does need the, the, the hope of the gospel and needs salvation, which we've seen hundreds of people saved over the years and baptized over the years. Who, who, who perhaps God could use us to restore a marriage or to see a wayward child come home. There's just a perhaps. And so starting the church with 37 people, very little money, no answers. All we had was a perhaps, and yet we're still here today, 13 years later, by the glory, for the glory of God and because of God. 1 Samuel 14, 7 his armor bearer responded, do what is in your heart. Go ahead. I'm completely with you. Courage is contagious. Courage is contagious. People want to follow courageous and bold leaders. The passive will always be intimidated by the passionate. They will always want to slow them down. This may be why Jonathan snuck out knowing that they would try to stop him. It's, it's dangerous. Moms, you know that. When your child leaves the home, what do you say? Be careful. I've started saying, take risks. And then they do, and they fracture their back, and they get into accidents, and then I might need to change that. But, but that's our mentality, right? Be safe. Be careful. Why? Because we... we we want the best for our family. It's a good thing. We love our children. We don't want harm to come to them. But at the same time, that mentality, I love what, I think it was John Piper talking about parents not withholding their children from going to the mission field because it's dangerous. Not keeping them from the blessing that God has for them, even when God calls them to dangerous places. Not trying to talk them out of that. Because if God is calling them to somewhere dangerous, it's for His glory, it's for His purposes, it's for the advancement of His kingdom. You can drive right down the road and get shot on Washington Road. You can be in the nicest place in Evans and, and find yourself in a, a crime situation where your life is in danger. Danger is all around us. But life is short and it's temporary. And God has called us to be about His mission, which requires risk and it requires laying our life down for some, a greater purpose. And so the, 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 in, the uh, passive will always be intimidated by the passionate. First Samuel, the, the final 15 verses says this, All right, Jonathan replied, we'll cross over to the men and then let them see us. If they say, wait until we reach you, then we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come on up, then we'll go up because the Lord has handed them over to us. That will be our sign. Now, just stop right there for a second. Once again, this makes no sense. Usually when you go to attack an enemy, that, that's why our soldiers wear camouflage. You want to blend in. You want to hide. And Jonathan's over here saying, we're going to show ourselves to them. And if they tell us to come on up, if they challenge us to a fight, we'll take that as a sign from God that he has delivered them over to us. It makes no sense. Jonathan wasn't the smartest military person on the team, but he's the most passionate and he's the most faithful. And so we see him engaged without all the answers. They let themselves be seen by the Philistine garrison and the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've been hiding. They're mocking them. 
the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up and we'll teach you a lesson, they said. Follow me, Jonathan told his armor bearer. Now it's getting real. Follow me, Jonathan told his armor bearer, for the Lord has handed them over to Israel. Jonathan climbed up, here we go again, using his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him. He has no weapon. He's using his hands and his feet. He has no way of defending himself. Defending himself. He has no weapon, and he has no use of his hands and his feet. In that first assault, Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down about 20 men in a half-acre field. Terror spread through the Philistine camp and the open fields to all the troops. Even the garrison and the raiding parties were terrified The earth shook and terror spread from God. When Saul's watchmen in Gabeah of Benjamin looked, they saw the panicking troops scattering in every direction. So Saul said to the troops with him, Call the roll and determine who has left us. They called the roll and saw that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. Saul and all the troops with him assembled and marched to the battle. And there the Philistines were, fighting against each other in great confusion." There were Hebrews from the area who had gone earlier into the camp to join the Philistines, but even they joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Those were the first uh, bandwagon Fairweather fans. Verse 22, when all the Israelites, when all the Israelite men who had been hiding in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they also joined Saul and Jonathan in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. You can write this down. God responds to courageous faith. God responds to courageous faith. In uncertainty, when his own father and leader chose to cower in fear, Jonathan chose to act courageously, and God responded to his courageous faith. He sent an earthquake, struck fear in the enemy's heart, and confused them, and ultimately saved Israel that day. Jonathan didn't have to defeat the entire army. He defeated 20 men. And as he defeated 20 men, as he took a step of faith and he risked his own life, God responded, God acted, caused confusion, sent an earthquake. And in that moment, the Philistines are fighting each other. It causes the other people to engage. And now the war was won. Jonathan was the leader in this moment. He boldly did what was right, and others followed. If there's ever a moment in our history that we need Christians to have courage to follow Jesus, no matter the cost, it's this moment. I don't know about all the moments prior to my life, We often get tunneled vision thinking that like we're it. It's all about us. All of our experiences are the experience. So I don't know about other moments, but I know what I see in our culture and our time today. And if there's ever a moment where we need Christians to be courageous, it is now. God's not calling you to win the victory. What did the scripture say? Verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day. Jonathan doesn't get the glory. The Lord gets the glory. Jonathan was faithful. And God honored his faithfulness, but the Lord saved Israel that day. We need Christians to have the courage to stand in the gap for our kids and future generations. We need Christians who have the courage to obey God's word and live by truth, the truth, 
not our own perspective of truth. We need Christians who have the courage to confront evil, who have courage to love Jesus, to love our families, and to love our neighbors. We need Christians who have the courage to make personal sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. That's why this year, that's why those who are disengaged, it's time to engage to serve, to be generous, to share your faith, to engage our community, the things that we're called to do. It's time for us to quit cowering in fear, to be paralyzed because of the unknowns and the uncertainty, and to be engaged in the mission that God has called us to in leading people to become passionate followers of Jesus, going into all the world and make disciples and to teach them all that he has commanded. What could God do through you as an individual if you would just passionately engage, if you would act courageously? What could he do at New Passion Church if you would just act courageously? If you would not be paralyzed with fear? What could he do in your workplace and in your community and in your neighborhood and in your school? If you would just choose to be like Jonathan to say, you know what? I don't have all the answers. I don't, I'm not the smartest person in the room. I don't have it all figured out, but you know what? I'm not just going to sit back behind a shade tree doing nothing, but I'm going to engage. And even if I get it wrong, even if I fail, even if I lose my life, I'm going to engage. I'm going to be courageous. I'm going to be bold. I'm going to be passionate. What could God do through you? Because he acted in this moment. He responded to courageous faith. And that's why in 2023, I'm calling all of us to be courageous for the sake of the gospel to do what's right, and to obey God's word even when it's difficult. And I just wonder who would say, do what's in your heart. Go ahead. I'm completely with you. I wonder today, would that be your declaration? Not what's in my heart, but maybe we say, do what's in God's word. Go ahead. I'm completely with you. Because that's my desire. That what we do aligns with God's word so that all of us together can come together and go, I'm completely with you. I'm completely on board. No matter what the cost, no matter what the challenge, I'm going to be courageous. And I'm going to engage. And I'm going to be involved. Today, maybe as I pray, maybe that courageous step is that you trust Christ with your eternity. Maybe it's that you've never placed your faith in him for salvation. In this moment, you can have that conversation with him. You can call out to him, repent of your sin, and ask him to save you. That may be a courageous step for you. The Bible tells us that he will. And so as I pray, you can take that step. We would love to know that. You can fill out a connect card and and let us know. We can follow up with you. But for the rest of us, if we've not been engaged, if we've not been following what we've felt God's leading us to do, not just at New Passion, but outside of here, that today you would say, I'm going to engage. I'm going to be courageous. I'm going to courageously obey God's word and his spirit inside of me. Whatever it is he's speaking to you as I pray, take this moment to have a conversation with him. God, we thank you for the example given to us by Jonathan and by Saul. God, we know there are consequences to disobedience and we know there are consequences to not um, living by the truth of your word. God, you've given us truth. You've given us something absolute that we can anchor our life to because it will lead us well. It gives us a solid and firm foundation to not only um, live upon, but to build upon. 
And so, God, I pray that each of us would make a determination as we start this new year, but most importantly, just as we start a new day, that we make a determination that we are going to live courageously, that we're going to live in obedience, that we're going to stand for truth, that we're going to engage in this spiritual battle that we are a part of. God, we are, we, we are deep in the midst of a spiritual war, and yet you've equipped us with everything that we need to win this war, to be a part of the victory that you have already brought through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. God, I pray that this church would be engaged in our community and sharing the gospel and sharing our faith, whether it be in the workplace, the neighborhoods, the schools, that we would not passively sit back and watch people go to their eternity without Christ or even live their life in Christ without the spiritual knowledge and, and truth that they need to grow. Help us not just to make disciples, but to teach them, to help them to grow, to help them become passionate followers of Jesus. As the Lord speak to us in this moment, may we be found faithful. May we be found obedient this year. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.